Hey, this is Annie. And Samantha. And welcome to Stuff I Never Told You, a production of iHeartRadio. Today, we are on part two of our overview of women and organizing. So go listen to part one. If you if you haven't already, uh, we covered all kinds of things from suffragettes to the modern civil rights movement. Um, so definitely check that out prior to listening to this one. And for this one, which um, we're, we're going to cover some big events that uh, women have helped plan and protested it in and, and specific women, just like we did in part one. We're going to start with the Woman's March in Pretoria. So on August 9th, 1956, over 20,000 women in Pretoria protested a proposed amendment to the Urban Areas Act, which would have required black women to carry passes in urban areas. Um, And a pass was essentially a passport that strengthened apartheid in part by severely restricting where you could go and where you couldn't go and what you could do and what you couldn't do, jobs you could have, things like that. And this was not the first attempt by the government to implement passes, nor was this the first time people, and particularly women, engaged in civil disobedience to make their own opposition known. Um, And as we said in the previous one, just a disclaimer, there's so much leading up to the things we're talking about. Right. Um, Like, we're talking about one specific event, but there's so many things tied into that event that made it happen. So many forces at work. Um, so just always keep that in mind. We are kind of doing the the highlights of these events, but like we said in part one, we could talk about all these for entire episodes. And if you want us to, let us know. Yes. Yes. But anyway, okay, yes. There had been all these protests in in South Africa. Uh, many women who, who participated were jailed. All of it culminated in the Women's March in 1956. A song was written to mark the event that went in part, Stridgedom, you have tampered with the women, you have struck a rock. And Stridgedom was the prime minister at the time. I apologize if I'm mispronouncing his name. Could not find it anywhere, uh, but I'm trying my best. <laughs> the prime minister wasn't there to see the protest. That was on purpose. He didn't want uh, didn't want to be involved. Hmm. Uh, so protesters left a massive stack of signed petitions, um, thousands of them at his door, which he never looked at. Um, and they closed out the protest with a 30 minute moment of silence. August 9th is now a national holiday in South Africa. Women's Day, and a monument commemorating the event was erected in 2000, uh, and it was recreated in 2006 for the 50th anniversary. Right. Um, And as we record this, it's June, which is Pride Month and something we owe to the Stonewall riots. And I know we've been, I've been seeing it more and more on social media, talking about the significance of the Stonewall riots, especially in pertaining to the protests and marches today. Stewing unrest and altercations between the police and the LGBTQ plus community eventually culminated in a police raid of the Stonewall Inn, which was a gay bar in Greenwich Village on June 28, 1969. This was the catalyst for numerous protests across the country, protests that took place every year. Records recounting this time from the LGBTQ perspective are 
unfortunately sparse, and in part because of the time, going on the record as an LGBTQ person was really dangerous. So this major historical event is quite murky at best. Even people who were there still argue about what happened and who threw the first brick, etc. And I think that's kind of the beginning of any type of unrest. You never really know the full story. Right. Uh, yeah, yeah. So this was just that's a good disclaimer to put with this one because uh, it is sort of almost mythical right. in its retelling and its importance. And perhaps because of that, uh, there is a lot of argument about what really happened, um, which is just good to keep in mind. Right. And I think we could put that on our first uh, episode, part one of this topic. We kind of said that with Lucy Parsons and the Hay Haymarket riots or Haymarket protests as well. It's kind of that same thing as. And it's even further ago. No one really knows exactly what happened. Right. Um, and some of the first American LGBTQ plus groups formed across the country in the 50s. The following decades saw an increasing awareness around the movement and a movement that intersected with several cultural moments, black power, second wave feminism, and anti-war protests. But... We do know at this time, people in the LGBTQ community were labeled as medically insane, sexually deviant, predatory, and frequently evil by the media and religiously immoral and unemployable. Which, you know what, that's still kind of happening today. Um, it was not uncommon for gay bars or other places of gathering to be raided by the police, which actually, there was an, a raid a few years ago here in Atlanta at a gay bar as well, so... That is something to know. Um, there was a public confrontation in 1959 at L.A.'s Cooper Donuts and in 1965 in San Francisco at a fundraiser for the Council on Religion and the Homosexual. That was also the year activists in Philadelphia started picketing in protest of the treatment of the LGBTQ plus community over July 4th at Independence Hall. Over in New York, in response to the routine practice of the New York State Liquor Authority of revoking the liquor license of bars that serve gay and lesbian patrons, gay men protested with sip-ins, uh, the alcohol version of sit-ins in 1966. The same year in San Francisco, there was a riot at Compton's Cafeteria. And then a year later, in 1967, the police raided L.A. gay bar, the Black Cat Tavern, which also sparked a series of demonstrations. And this is the same year mafia members Fat Tony Laria opened Stonewall Inn, a, quote, private gay bar. It was one of the largest gay clubs in the community, and it boasted a place to dance, which was rare at the time. It hosted a lot of runaway gay youth who'd been rejected by their families and institutions. However, they did not have a liquor license. The authorities claimed it was illegal to serve in disorderly situations, and they classified a place that allowed LGBTQ plus patrons as disorderly. Um, owners of the gay bars frequently bribed officials to keep their doors open and wealthier patrons who wanted to keep their sexuality a secret and for warnings before the raids were set to take place. So that night at the Stonewall Inn, the owner had already bribed the police, but two undercover officers showed up anyway. Because the patrol cars uh, for transporting people who were arrested uh, were late, the crowd of patrons and bystanders grew, reaching a boiling point that led to violence. By some accounts, a lesbian patron by the name of Stormé DeLarvery threw the first punch. Um, again, lots of conflicting stories there. The police retreated inside the bar where they took cover for 45 minutes. It wasn't until a fire truck and riot squad showed up that the crowd was quelled. What followed was a six-day confrontation between patrons and police, often with items and fists being thrown 
The worst of it took place on the first and last day when several storefronts in the area were looted. Depending on the night, there was anywhere from 500 to 2,000 protesters. Over the course of the six days, there were 13 arrests and one indirect death, although accounts of that conflict as well. Black trans woman Marsha P. Johnson and Latina trans woman Sylvia Rivera frequently are credited with leading the American LGBTQ plus liberation movement. Um, and soon after the Stonewall riot started, Johnson and Rivera were on the scene. They were the first two trans women in the world, New York claims, to have statues erected in their honor in Greenwich Village. Uh, we definitely could and should do a whole episode on them. Absolutely. And note, the word transgender wasn't widely used at the time. Um, Marsha P. Johnson was a self-identified drag queen who used to say the P stood for pay it no mind, which was the answer she often gave when asked about gender. She was an activist for many causes, from transgender rights, homelessness. Uh, she was a vocal advocate for people with HIV AIDS, uh, prisoners and sex workers. Rivera also self-identified as a drag queen, and later she identified as transgender, though she expressed a dislike of labels. Rivera also participated in a lot of causes, um, racial, criminal, and economic justice on top of gay rights. Um, and while gay men and lesbians at this time could pass as straight, people like Johnson and Rivera did not have that luxury, um, or perhaps they were simply unwilling. What really set Stonewall apart was the determination of organizers to commemorate the event each year, getting permits for parades that were widely covered in the media. Thousands attended the first Pride March in New York, or as it was called then, Christopher Street Liberation Day, uh, that took place one year after the Stonewall riots. Hundreds of new LGBTQ plus organizations were founded in, in the wake of the Stonewall riots, including the Gay Liberation Front that went on to partner with the Black Panthers, uh, the Gay Activist Alliance, and the Lavender Menace. Right. In 1999, President Bill Clinton named the month of June, quote, Gay and Lesbian Pride Month. President Obama named Stonewall Inn, which has changed hands and names several times, and Christopher Park on the opposite side of the street as Stonewall National Monument. It is currently the only historical LGBTQ plus monument in the United States. And as we've been saying throughout this, uh, we still have a lot of work to do. Uh, this current administration has particularly been targeting trans rights, although we did get some good news recently with the Supreme Court decision. Um, and, and we have celebrities like J.K. Rowling tweeting out hurtful and transphobic comments. So, yeah, uh, still a lot of work to do. Um, and even before uh, recent events, when it comes to our current protests we're seeing around equality and police brutality, there was argument about whether police should be allowed to have a presence at Pride and a similar argument around whether or not corporations should have a part at Pride, which is sort of a theme we see in a lot of the things that we're talking about. Right. Um, so we have, we have even more things that we want to discuss. But first, we have a quick break for a word from our sponsor. And we're back. 
Thank You sponsor. And we're back with the Women's Strike for Equality. In 1970, a protest of 50,000 women marched down Fifth Avenue in New York for women's equality and as a show of the new wave feminism at the time, what we would consider the second wave feminism. Uh, The protest was originally intended as a women's strike or national work stoppage and was the brainchild of the author, the feminist mystique, Betty Friedan. This was the largest march for women since the suffrage movement 50 years earlier, and the demonstrations were nationwide with women all across the country participating. They had a purpose for the new wave feminism, and as one article said, they, quote, agreed on a set of three specific goals, which reflected the overall spirit of second wave feminism, free abortion on demand, equal opportunity in employment and education, and the establishment of 24-7 child care centers. Two years later, after these demonstrations, Title IX passed, which outlawed discrimination on the basis of sex and educational programs that received federal financial assistance. And of course, Roe v. Wade came three years later. So we also wanted to talk about the Women's March of Peace in 1976, which actually happened in Northern Ireland uh, during the Troubles, or also known as the Northern Ireland Conflict. After a British soldier shot the driver of an Irish Republican Army getaway car in Andersonstown, which is a section of Belfast, which led to the death of three children after being struck by the car, the children's aunt, Betty Williams, began to go around the neighborhood to have people sign a petition for peace of that conflict. Um, which eventually Williams turned into a protest, which started with 200 women. And soon after, Myra Corrigan, who lived in that neighborhood, soon joined the march and helped with the cause and helped lead this movement. Uh, The following week, the march actually grew to have over 10,000 people. And then the week after that, it grew to 20,000. And because of their movement, Corrigan and Williams were awarded the Nobel Peace Prize the following year for their leadership. It was reported in an article that the violent deaths had gone down due to the marches and the protests. Something else we wanted to talk about that we have talked about before on this show is the ERA. In 1976, the National Organization of Women organized a march for the Equal Rights Amendment. Now, uh, as they were known, brought 16,000 people to march for the ratification of the ERA in Springfield, Illinois. Next year, another march happened in D.C., but this time they also coordinated a run to raise money and raised over $1.7 million for ratification. The next year, they had 100,000 people marching in D.C. for the extension to ratify the ERA, and after winning that extension, they had another one the following year in Chicago called the Mother's Day March for the ERA. And yes, this is something we still are talking about to this day. Right, um, obviously, that we still need to push forward. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, so let's talk about the Women's March for a second. So a lot of people were upset and angry and worried. I think that is an understatement. After the 2016 U.S. election of Donald Trump, women were particularly outraged after a campaign full of sexism and stories of sexual assault and all of that anger coalesced into the Women's March on January 17, 2017. What started as a Facebook post put together by Teresa Shook and Bob Bland turned into an alliance of marches that took place across the country, drawing an estimated three to six million marchers around the world, making it the largest single-day march in history. A sea of, I know you're so excited, of Princess Leia signs and pink hats could be seen. 
Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And while the march has drawn a lot of criticism for being very white and very white-centered, the leaders were mostly white, and the original name Million Women's March was reminiscent of the 1997 Million Women's March, which was a protest of mostly black women against the white-dominated feminist movement that was also a response to the Million Man's March. Um, There are also critiques about uh, the Women's March um, in terms of mismanagement, lack of organization, anti-Semitism in leadership. Um, But it was at least a part of the movement that spurned a lot of women to run for office, to organize, to campaign, to form their own groups. It also introduced a lot of women to the idea of intersectional feminism. Again, black women have been doing a lot of this forever and were rightfully annoyed by a lot of what was going on here, but it did. we did get some positive things from this march. And it takes place every year, every January in Washington, D.C., and it has sister protests around the world, and it typically draws around 5,000 to 10,000 protesters. You can check out their website to see what initiatives and causes they're currently supporting. As of right now, they're focusing on defunding the police and COVID-19 and the impact that has on women in marginalized communities. But we're still not done. We're still not done with uh, all of the things we could talk about. But first, we're going to pause for one more quick break for a word from our sponsor. We're back. Thank you, sponsor. And we wanted to talk about the Women's March for Change. Right. So uh, keeping on the theme with women's marches, yes, in 2019, an estimated number between 3.5 million to 5 million Indian women lined up on National Highway 66 in the southern Indian state of Kerala. They call this wall Vanitha Mathil or the Women's Wall, and it stretched 385 miles. Corella is about the size of Switzerland and has a population of about 35 million. The wall was organized by the Left Democratic Front and was funded by several independent women's organizations and was planned to bring awareness of gender equality, more specifically to protest a religious ban that prevented women of menstruating age from entering one of the country's sacred Hindu temples, even after the Supreme Court ruled that they could. The event was advertised through the media and by word of mouth. Women were transported to different points along their roads from outside the city. It was reported to be the biggest gathering for gender equality in India. At one point, they all joined hands and took a pledge for equality, and they remained that way for 15 minutes. The protests and protesters were matched with a lot of opposition from the right-winged groups with strikes and even mobs and violent counter-protest. But even during this time, a woman entered the temple as was her constitutional right and as a show of what they were fighting for. And though the fight for equality is newer and ongoing, as one participant said in an interview, social change doesn't happen in a day. It needs time. But with these small steps, we've made it easier for the next generation to embrace it. In this way, the wall of women marks a new dawn for feminism in India. 
Uh, and still going on track with feminism and specifically intersectional feminism. The Me Too movement was created in 2006 by Tarana Burke specifically for black women and girls and women of color in low wealth communities who have survived sexual assault or abuse to find ways of healing. As stated on their site, quote, our vision for the beginning was to address both the dearth and resources for survivors of sexual violence and to build a community of advocates driven by survivors who will be at the forefront of creating solutions to interrupt sexual violence in their communities. The movement got to be so popular that the hashtag became a symbol of community as well as a way of destigmatizing survivors and their experiences. It also became a movement about accountability. Because of all of this, perpetrators like Harvey Weinstein were held accountable for their actions and their abuses. And, of course, a controversy within these movements, much like others, is the problem of it being hijacked and accredited to white women, specifically here in celebrities. But Nomadic creator Tarana has made this movement more than just a mere hashtag in social media. She has been able to create a platform for survivors to build communities, support groups, and even curriculums to help heal so many who thought they were alone. Yeah, and... uh we can see the the mark this has left on our society just if you think of like hashtag me too in the gaming industry, hashtag me too in ballet, like just it's become sort of a shorthand for talking about these issues that for so long we had ignored on a large uh, societal level. Um, it's just instantly recognizable. We right. know what that means to say. Right. And it's international. Um, Something else we wanted to talk about is Black Lives Matter. Black Lives Matter was created in 2013 by Alicia Garza, Patrice Cullors, and Opal Tometi after the acquittal of George Zimmerman for the murder of Trayvon Martin. The hashtag was utilized as a platform to organize and bring groups together to discuss ways to push anti-racism change in communities across the country. And beyond the hashtag, there are now 40 chapters in the country to help organize within local communities. As the site states, quote, Black Lives Matter is an ideological and political intervention in a world where black lives are systemically and intentionally targeted for demise. It is an affirmation of black folks' humanity, our contributions to the society, and our resilience in the face of deadly oppression. Yeah, the movement continues to push in working to weed out corrupt public officials, continues to fight police brutality, and work to change policies in the federal government. And as hashtag Black Lives Matter was an overall social media movement that opened up platforms for people to organize all around the world, so the hashtag Say Her Name came as a secondary due to the many women and those identify as femme were also dying at the hands of police brutality, neglect, or vigilantism. As victims such as Sandra Bland and more recently Breonna Taylor still have not gotten any justice or seemingly as much attention as the death of cis male black men. And also with that, Black Trans Lives Matter, which has more recently been used as the deaths of Tony McDade, Dominique Fells, and Rhea Milton were less spoken of or acknowledged in the attention of the whole Black Lives Matter movement. But as recently as Sunday, June 14th, over 15,000 people came together for the Brooklyn Liberation March to bring attention to the deaths of people in the Black trans community and rallying to show that they deserve justice and that Black lives matter, Black trans lives matter, and Black women's lives matter. So, there you go. This is a very small, condensed version of what can happen when women 
organize. We wanted to do something to showcase the sheer power of women and those who identify as female when it comes to organizing, protesting, educating, and leading movements. The protests are continuing today, and yes, it can get messy and even tiresome. But we have to remember what this is about and why it's so important, especially for those who consider themselves as allies, to show up, to listen, and refuse to ignore the injustices that is happening in and around our community. Yeah, yep. Um, And as we record this, it is still June. And it is still Pride Month. And with that, we wanted to go ahead and let you know that our next book club selection is Unapologetic, a Black, Queer, and Feminist Mandate for Radical Movements by Charlene A. Carruthers. So go ahead and pick that up. Um, If you don't have it, check out local bookstores. If that doesn't work, you can get it on your your e-reader, whatever you call it. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like e-reader. I don't know what exactly... That is, and but the, uh, your Kindle? Kindles and um, then some. I was trying not to say Kindle specifically because I don't want to advertise Amazon. I yeah, see, so I was I like see. digital, All digital right. media. Digital <laughs> is that better? <laughs> I'm old. Don't start with me. <laughs> um, but yeah, it is, it's pretty easy to get it. However, you would like to, and let us all keep learning together. Um, And we would love, as always, to hear from you listeners about what we should talk about next. And you can contact us in several ways. One of them is email, the electronic message. And you can send those to stuffmediamomstuff at iheartmedia.com. You can also find us on Twitter at MomStuffPodcast or on Instagram at Stuff I Never Told You. Thanks, as always, to our super producer, Andrew Howard. Thanks. And thanks to you for listening. Stuff I'm Never Told You is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.